Welcome to the Croc Cast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, I'm Erin Corcoran, the Executive Director of the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies and an Associate Teaching Professor at the Keough School of Global Affairs. I'm also the guest editor of the latest issue of Peace Policy, a quarterly publication of the Croc Institute that offers research-based insights, commentary, and solutions to the global challenge of violent conflict. The latest issue focuses on issues related to U.S. immigration and refugee policies, especially at the southern border. I'm being joined today by my co-authors for this issue, Christina Campbell, professor of law at David A. Clark School of Law, which is part of the University of the District of Columbia, and she's also a 2002 alumna of the Notre Dame Law School. Welcome, Christina. Thanks. And also joining us is Elizabeth Keyes, Associate Professor of Law at the Immigrant Rights Clinic, which is part of the University of Baltimore. Thanks for being here, Liz. Pleasure to be here. And I just want to thank you both for being here and taking the time to write for Peace Policy. So to start with, if you could just spend a little bit of time giving our listeners a shortened version of your articles. Maybe tell them a little bit about your main arguments and why they should check out the full piece. Christina, you want to start? Sure. I wrote a short piece about the Convention on the Rights of the Child and the failure to protect refugee children in the U.S.-Mexico border. My argument is that the United States, as a major drafter of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, and is the only UN member state never to ratify it. And so my argument is that our long history of not incorporating the best interest of the child standard into our policy toward migrant children is a violation of not just our international refugee law, but also our domestic law, and that we have an obligation to go ahead and, and treat our children better going forward and considering the rights of the child. So Liz, would you mind spending a few minutes talking with our listeners about your recent piece and peace policy and why you think they should be checking it out and reading the full version of it? Sure. So my piece tackles a different issue, although I think we'll figure out in this conversation that there's some really interesting points of connection. We've all seen news stories about islands sinking in the Pacific or closer to home hurricanes and fires that displace people within America and so on. What we don't tend to see in those stories is an effort to think about the ability people have to migrate to more climate secure locations. In my piece, I point out the remarkable lack of an international legal framework for climate migrants. And I offer up the story of the Dust Bowl of the 1930s in the U.S. to show how climate migration can be one of the strategies we deploy for climate migration. And obviously, that story occurred within the U.S. But at the time, the requirement that California let the migrants in was far from certain, and it took a Supreme Court decision to resolve that question. And I'm just fascinated by the story and its parallels and potentially lessons for today. Great. So in the news lately, we've been hearing actually quite a bit about what's happening on the Southwest border. I mean, Today, just in looking at the headlines, I saw several different articles relating to sort of increased numbers, particularly increased numbers of unaccompanied children and adolescents who have been arriving at the border. And so sort of thinking about the article that you wrote, Christina, what kind of protections would you like to see the new Biden administration have put in place 
to receive these children, to adjudicate their claims, and anything else that you think would be important for our listeners to know about with respect to this population that we're reading about of late? Sure. So the Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 37B, states that the arrest and detention of children should only be used as a measure of last resort, and it should be for the shortest appropriate period of time. When we're talking about rights of children and what's in their best interest, you know, children have a right to grow up in a family environment, to have an environment that certainly is not a, a carceral environment, right? So I think, you know, there are other options for children that are unaccompanied or children that are otherwise not with caretakers or adults who can care for them when they arrive in the United States. There is refugee foster care, the federal refugee foster care system. But I think the truth is that a lot of these children who are coming already have family in the United States. And I think just going ahead and and locking these kids up again clearly violates international law. And I think it violates our own history, our our own law in the Flores case. I think in my article, I talk a little bit about how when the Supreme Court considered Flores, they more or less articulated a different standard than the best interest of a child. It's called more or less the good enough standard saying that, well, so it's good enough if we we lock them up for this short period of time. And I think that just violates human rights. And so I think that we need to look really hard about how we're treating children because the bottom line is they are children. Children. And I think, you know, the zero tolerance policy that Trump enacted was horrific. But this is, as I said before, something that's been happening for a very long time. I would argue that even putting families, keeping families together, but in detention, children that's still detaining children, that's still putting children in incarceration. So that also, in my opinion, violates both the Flores Settlement Agreement and the International Convention on the Rights of the Child. Thanks, Christina. And Liz, I know you talked a little bit already about how you looked at the Dust Bowl as an example of sort of people who are displaced by climate, effects of climate or changes in in the physical environments. And I know there's been more talk of late, particularly in the scholarly and academic circles, about how the traditional refugee framework for those fleeing climate disasters, climate crisis, particularly those that are, are actually driven by human choices and human decisions, is inadequate to sort of to deal with this changing demographic. And I guess I, I'm, I'm curious, what do you think might be ways in which we could approach this new phenomenon that we're seeing happen in ways that are respectful of yeah. human rights and human dignity and will provide protection globally? I'm just curious on what, what your thoughts are on that I love, I love the question because human dignity just, it's such a beautiful phrase to remember and use to center ourselves. So first I just want to clarify because I have learned that even among people who follow the news really closely, the refugee convention is so misunderstood. And so there's a phrase kind of out there about environmental refugees, and it's got a nice sort of descriptive quality to it. We we know who we mean, but they're not refugees in any legal sense. And the convention that protects refugees doesn't cover, well, a very it would cover a very, very small, narrow percentage of people who are basically leaving for climate reasons. And essentially that's for a couple reasons. The persecution somebody would have to face is typically by a government or a group that the government can't control. And here the enemy, broadly speaking, is climate. To the extent there's a bad guy, it's the Western Hemisphere, Northern nations that have created this climate situation. They're not likely to consider themselves the persecutors. But also the the migrants have to fit into one of the five protected grounds. I know you know this backwards and forwards, but these are things like political opinion, religion, membership in a particular social group. 
And most of the refugees aren't leaving because they fear harm because of one of those bases. So the refugee convention is just the wrong framework and there is no alternative. Some countries have experimented, notably New Zealand, Sweden, randomly, with refugee visas that would be targeted to places like the Pacific Island nations where the entire country is submerging. But this is just a tiny, tiny piece of what's necessary. We need an international framework that addresses this kind of migration. And where I would connect it to what Christina is discussing, one of the ways is that we manufacture crisis when we don't have rules that sort of fit reality. The kids at the border, it's such a good example of that. As Christina said, they've got family members here. There are solutions, there are alternatives, there are programs we could put in place or strengthen to prevent them making the dangerous trip and then locking them up at the border. We know how to do this, we choose not to. And likewise with climate migration, we know people are losing their land we know that people have to leave, that migration is an adaptation strategy. And we know if they're leaving, they need someplace they can lawfully go. And we can pretend that problem doesn't exist, but it does. And until we come up with a solution that fits, we're going to be you know, essentially walking ourselves into another kind of crisis. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I talked about in my piece is sort of the ways in which I think that the 1951 Refugee Convention, which you did a great job, Liz, of explaining what it sort of is, is inadequate to sort of deal with the differing migration issues that are arising in the contemporary context. And I think children and climate migrants are really good examples of how this definition that sort of came out of World War II, out of Europeans fleeing Nazi Germany and persecution is ill-equipped to sort of meet the challenges that we're facing today. And I think to your point that there needs to be an international framework and an international response, I think is absolutely right on. And one of the things I talked about in my piece was how much can we get from the sort of the global compact on refugees and the global compact on migration, which was an effort that was undertaken through sort of a, through a two-year consultative process with states, civil society organizations, refugees and migrants themselves about sort of how might we reimagine a migration regime. And, and while it's aspirational and in some, and some would say not enough, I think it, it is helpful for kind of helping us sort of, I think, transform our thinking about what we might want to do going forward. And so I guess one thing I would, would, would be curious about is for both of you, sort of what kind of concrete policy recommendations might you make to an international framework or to the, to the new administration, the new Biden administration that deals specifically with these vexing problems that you both have identified so well in your pieces and some next steps, some ways forward. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, I mentioned in my article that the Congress, there's been introduced the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, and that kind of gives some steps forward, right? It would it would prohibit immigration officials from separating children from their parents for the purpose of enforcing immigration law. So there would be no more zero tolerance policy like we saw several years ago under the Trump administration. The bill would also give more legal orientation programs and counseling for children. They would fund school districts to educate unaccompanied children. I mean, that's, that's all like a really tiny step, right? I mean, like prohibit 
pivoting the worst and then like, and then giving some funding for programs that we know that are kind of like band-aids for things, as Liz said, we could fix if we wanted to, but are, are choosing not to, I think. And I know that the Biden administration also just re-upped the Central American program where children can apply to adjust their immigration status in their home country. So that was the idea, the policy idea is, is to prevent this type of the word that previous administrations have used as a surge of children. I don't particularly care for that word because it sounds like a wave crashing. And and I, you know these are children coming, running for their lives, essentially trying to reunite with their families. So I think, I mean, that, that on the, on the domestic level, I think those are steps in the right direction, but I do think that there needs to be a whole reworking of the system of how we treat children. I mean, children in immigration proceedings now do not have a right to counsel. The idea that children are equipped to represent themselves in adversarial proceedings regarding deportation when they're arguing, you know, that they need a life-saving remedy such as asylum or even a lower form of, you know, a lesser type of relief, such as like if they were eligible for special immigrant juvenile status, that's still a very complex dual jurisdiction procedure, which requires legal help. You need attorneys to do that kind of stuff. And so I think if we are serious about addressing the humanitarian crisis, first of all, we do have to look at it as a humanitarian crisis. And I think, you know, I get a lot of pushback when I tell people that the children coming to the border are refugees. People just push back. They're like, no, these are not refugees. I'm like, well, yes, they are refugees. Refugees are people who are unable or unwilling to turn to their home country. That's that's what these children are. So I think what Liz said about the idea of there is no remedy Right. And what you said, Aaron, too, about how like the post-World War II framework is not a good place to start when we're looking at our current migration crisis. I think you're absolutely right. So I think on the international level, because this type of migration is worldwide, you know, I've had students go work in refugee camps in Greece, for example, in the last several years over the summer. Same type of thing. Sometimes some of them are climate migrants, some of them are fleeing other situations. But this is a worldwide problem that we need to work together with. And I think I don't know about you know, amending current conventions or, or having new conventions. But I certainly think that we do need to take a look again at what it means to be a refugee and what the basis for refugee status is, in addition to the ones we already have in our international body of law. Liz? I mean, an enthusiastic yes to everything Christina has said. And I'll say that while the UN sort of framework through the Convention Against Refugees is not a good fit. There are regional conventions that are a better fit and do address climate migration in particular, as well as movements of people that don't fit as neatly into the refugee sort of category. And Christina's right. The kids showing up at the border, like we're refugees. The level of work it takes to prove on an individual basis that they qualify under the convention though, is just, it's, it's horrific. The Latin American framework doesn't require that kind of individualized determination necessarily when populations are driven by general conditions, which we could attribute to El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala with the gangs and the drug cartels. That would be enough. So those are actually really interesting frameworks if we're thinking about amending existing conventions. The trouble is that politically, the Refugee Convention is under so much strain that I think the moment we talk about amending, we're not talking about expanding it. We're talking about reducing it. I think, and this is aspirational, isn't even a word big enough to capture how outlandish what I'm going to say is, but I think people need to start saying it so it stops sounding so outlandish. I think we need to look at opening our borders 
far more than we do. Recognizing that immigration, while being a net positive, disparately impacts some disadvantaged populations within our country. We can be exquisitely attuned to that. And in Maryland, where I practice, that's been African-Americans on our Eastern shore who've been displaced by largely sort of Mexican, Central American workers. There is stories there. It's complicated. But what I get out of that Dust Bowl story, which if I can just dwell a second, a couple of the eerie parallels are that the migrants were turned around at the border of California by the police. The LAPD went to the border with these quote unquote bum blockades to turn the migrants around. It looked a lot like our Southern border. What happened to the migrants once they got to California, they were you know, barred from benefits. They were shamed. They were vilified. It looks like a migration story. And within a generation, it was okay. And there's a lot of data. It's a complicated story, but there's a lot of data showing that despite some initial pain that was real for the state of California, absorbing all the migrants, California was okay. Likewise, I like to think that migration does come with some real cost, usually in the short term, but in the end, we'll be okay. And that message of we may just have to face this and deal with it and understand that over a generation we'll be okay, I just think it's important to say it no matter how naive I sound. And having been an immigration lawyer in the Trump administration, I'm actually not naive, but I want to have a view of 50 years from now because this is coming. So I actually wrote a paper my first year teaching wildly aspirational. I thought it was wildly aspirational at the time, but in retrospect, it's like, yeah, it's the same type of like, I looked at the European Union's like open border right to work concept. And I argued that we should have an American union, which again, this, this was like the beginning of the Obama administration. And I thought it was pretty crazy. And looking back, you know, 12 years, it looks even crazier. But in the rest of the world, I got contacted by the reason I, re- I developed a relationship with them people at a law school in Spain because they read that article and they were like, let's talk about this. And I got invited to collaborate with people in Brazil because of the same thing. So like you said, it does sound wildly aspirational and super crazy, but I think there is, you know, at least maybe not in our country, but I think in other parts of the world and other, well, certainly the Americas, this idea that like, maybe we can look towards something like this and not, don't be afraid of being called an open borders wacko, which, which I've been accused of being <laughs> on more than one occasion. But I think you're right. It's, it's reality. People are going to it's the oldest story in human history, right? Migration. It's it's who we are. We're a migratory people. And so you can fight it, but people are going to climb those walls. There was a beautiful fiction book on this theme in 2017, Mohsin Hamid's Exit West. And it essentially looks at the inevitability of migration, dispenses through a really cool sort of magical device, dispenses with borders and just watches what happens. And he doesn't understate the costs and the hardships, not at all. But he shares that same message of at the end of the day, things may be different, but things will be okay. And it's, again, it's a, just a message I really love to elevate. Yeah. And I would, and one thing I was just going to add is that I think the more draconian and securitized our border policies are, the kind of incentives that are created for weird flow issues. I mean, if you look at sort of in the last 35 years, decisions that people have had to make because borders are so secure and they're they're not porous in the sense of being able to work in one place and return home for the weekend because there's a wall, whether it's a physical or technological wall. 
actually also makes individuals have to make really hard choices that then even exacerbate the problems by which border policy is is supposedly trying to solve, right? So I think there's also increased securitization, sort of seeing these migrants as somehow a threat to security as opposed to sort of an organic part of the economy and sort of the human experience also continues to exacerbate these problems. And I think you're right. We're at a really important point. I mean, I, I talk to my students about this all the time. Like, so part of my job, right, is to teach you what the law says or what the policies are. But what I really want to do with you and your young minds is actually call upon you to sort of reimagine the world, right? What could the world look like if we didn't have the structures that we have in place or the assumptions that we have in place about migration? And so I think just even having this conversation about how the world could and should look differently. And I think you're right, Liz, to say that it might be uncomfortable a little bit, right? And that that's okay, you know, I think is is a message that I think more people need to hear. And I guess coming from someone who worked in the policy space in Washington, D.C., one of the things I'm curious about for both of you is how to convey that message. Because I think it's, it's possible to do it with young minds, you know, with, um, with students to ask them to sort of, be patient and reimagine. But with policymakers who are passing these bills and these laws, any suggestions on sort of how to possibly get them to engage in this exercise, right? This this thought exercise. I think the only thing that comes to mind is that the work you're doing, educating young people, to a certain extent, all of us, some of my students are less young, is the answer because young people around the world have demanded things that were politically impossible until they demanded them. And I'm thinking about Greta Thunberg and the movement she sparked or is part of. And I'm thinking about the dreamers who've moved mountains here in the States. There's a generation of people willing to do that reimagining and then insist that politicians listen to them. And I have hope that they will demand better. Yeah, I agree with Liz. I mean, I, I did a lot of advocacy in Arizona and one of the best experiences of my life was going back to Arizona after being gone for a long time. Like I was in Arizona at the, the beginning, like beginning like the aughts, right? And I remember being so dismayed because there was no, it was a terrible place to be a Latino. I'm not Latino, but I, you know, I was doing farm worker representation and I was trying, I was trying desperately to organize day laborers when I was down there on the side. And then I went to work at Maldas in LA and continued to do that work. But then years later, when I started teaching, I took students back to Arizona on a spring alternative spring break trip to see the work that's being done on the border. And the people who were doing it were the dreamers. And I remember hugging these boys, these twins who, when I was there, were like little kids. And now they've grown up and they were leaders in the state of Arizona, in the dreamer movement. And I just remember hugging them and saying like, you guys are, you guys are what I was dreaming and hoping for. Like, I mean, so I agree. I mean, and when I look at the young people who are brave, right, they're brave and they imagine and they have courage. I do think and doing, I know I was an impact litigator for a while. And what I learned from that is that change comes not from the top down, but from the bottom up. So I'm a big believer in, in that. I do believe that if anything's going to change, it's going to have to come from the people. I'll be totally honest with you. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in the people up top, but I do have a lot of confidence in the people on the ground. And so I think that that's where our focus needs to be in demanding that change. Great. And so for those people who are listening and sort of hearing some of the problems that you all have highlighted through the various different lenses of climate change and migration and unaccompanied children, what if someone wanted to 
take some sort of action to sort of make our immigration system, whether it's here in the United States or more in the more international context, more just, what might you recommend they do? Or what if you could give them one resource that they might want to check out to learn more about these issues? What might you recommend for them to look at? I think if you're interested in the issue of children doing stuff in the best interest of the children, immigrant detention and kids, you should look at the Young Center. The Young Center is an advocacy organization. It used to be part of the University of Chicago School of Law. It's no longer part of the School of Law, but they have a large presence all over the country, including on the border. And they work and have worked always to incorporate using the best interest of the child standard into fighting for and working with and advocating on behalf of immigrant children in detention. So, and a lot of them are, I think, um, I mean, I was just reading something that they wrote yesterday. They work also to negate and to dispel the myths and the stereotypes of a lot of the immigrant children, you know, Latino boys between the ages of 15 and 17 was specifically what they were talking about. And so I think, again, we need to work not just with the law, but with the the myths and the boogeymen and the and the scary rhetoric that we have, the racist and scary rhetoric that we have about these children, which is which is super damaging. And these are children. That's what I want people to remember. And I think um, the Young Center is a, is an organization that uses the law very very well to advocate not just for the legal well being of the children, but also the mental emotional well being of of the kids as well. Great, thanks, Liz. So I would have to say there's really, to my knowledge very little direct action on the sort of climate migration piece, but here's mm-hmm. where I see it sort of becoming more, more in a manageable scale. It, that's looking at the causes of migration, but also there's a racial justice element to climate change that is really critically important. And it's important within the United States. So I'm an immigration lawyer. I'm really interested in how our laws permit or don't permit people to come in from overseas. But there's also climate migration happening within the United States. And it's happening from really marginalized communities that, no surprise, correlate with racial minorities, certainly also with poverty and the connection there, this is all cross-connected. And so looking at ways, migration is, is usually the strategy of last resort. Most people don't want to leave home but we can work to make home better. That's part of the international conversation where President Biden links rightly putting resources into Central America as a way of preventing migration out to the United States. Great. Similarly, in the U.S., we should be really challenging things that drive people out of their communities. And that could be you know, mobilizing against, you know, different sort of developments that are poor people's housing that's placed in environmentally damaged locations or where people are at high risk of asthma or other public health issues and really making the connection between racial justice and environmental justice in ways that get to the issue before people need to choose migration as an out strategy. When we think about things like hurricanes and fires, it's a little bit harder to sort of have a preventative angle, but a lot of climate migration is more about degradation of communities. And I think that's the level on which we can get engaged wherever we live, just look around to the poorest pocket of your county or city, there's an environmental justice issue that needs local help. Thank you. And I think, I mean, that's what I think actually really sort of ties 
the pieces that we all authored for this issue and what ties them actually to sort of peace policy, right, and peace studies. And that is, is that peace studies is really concerned with not just the cessation of violence, right, but the creation and establishment of positive peace, which actually goes to the heart of what some of the things you were identifying, Liz, about what it means to eradicate structural violence in communities, including racism and environmental degradation and sort of the other things that prohibit people from sort of really living to their full potential and realizing their human dignity. And I think, again, speaking to the issues of children also, I think, is central sort of to the work of peace studies and making sure that children have agency and are understood as having rights as a child that come from their existence as being human beings. So I just want to thank you, one, for your really thoughtful, thought-provoking contributions to peace policy, but also just in general for the work that you both continue to do every day to make individual lives better through the clients that you represent and the students that you teach. It's been a real honor to be here with you today to chat and to talk, and I look forward to continued collaboration. Thanks, Erin. Thanks for having us be part of this conversation. Go Irish. been listening to the Croc Cast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. If you want to read the articles written by Aaron, Christina, and Liz and discussed in today's episode, you can find them at peacepolicy.nd.edu. For more episodes of the Croc Cast, subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, or listen online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people to find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. <laughs>